York stood on Harney Peak He spanned the four directions Vision grows strong as the sight goes weak And he could hear the least inflections Of spirit voices on the wind Of the severed sutras Hi everybody, I'm absolutely ready to uh, welcome poet, songwriter, and philosopher uh, Jeffrey Olsner to our program, futureprimitive.org. Recently, Jeffrey has completed a book called A Country Where All Colors Are Sacred and Alive, a memoir of non-ordinary experience and collaboration with nature. Jeffrey Osner has been actively addressing community health and environmental issues for 35 years as a community organizer in Georgia and Arkansas, while engaged with other anti-nuclear research and activism. He is the co-author of a book about natural forms of radiation protection, and most recently he's working to alert the public and public health officials to the environmental hazards of fracking for subterranean natural gas deposits. He is convinced that we can help sustain and restore environmental harmony through our loving interactions with the natural world in a way that complements such necessary and important political work. So this is very interesting, Jeff, because it has been said sometimes that um, environmental activism might be missing a spiritual dimension so that things can really expand. So could you speak about that? Well, I wonder about that, too. I've wondered for myself how I could, could bring all of myself into my work for the earth and i worked steadily um, not every day but for many years to do things as you were as you were listing some of the things i've done um certainly for the environment but but as a, a youth in 1969 and 70 when i was a student at the university of aberdeen i discovered the Fintorn community and there i got an early uh picture of a a model for working um, to increase harmony between humanity and the environment. Mm -hmm. It was very different than the political and grassroots activism uh, that that I've also engaged in over the years. And that model has been kind of running parallel in my mind over the years in in my prayer life, in my my work with meditation and all. it's, It's just infused me with a wish to always be blessing the environment and you know, along with that, like a lot of people, I think, who engage in in work with prayer and what David Spangler, who's one of my spiritual friends, calls mm-hmm. subtle activism, there's a, there's a poignant question, just how much is this helping? Well, I don't really know how much it's helping, but I've, over the years, as a result of some of the experiences that I talk about in the book, in fact, where I've received some form of real tangible feedback from nature that my attunements and my prayers and my meditations have had some kind of positive effect. 
I've really come to feel more confidence that there is some element, some increment of help in every prayer and blessing, in every moment of affection that we feel towards nature, and that this can be honed and refined um, as we meditate more deeply, as we open our hearts, and um, that I wanted to write about this. I wanted to write in a way that would be confidence-building for people, just as I've tried to build my own confidence in, in looking at some of the different parts of my experience that I guess I could describe as non-ordinary, um, and, uh, and trying to put them all together and see just how, just how they add up um, in terms of being things that would be valuable, helpful for the earth. That, that word harmony keeps coming up for me over and over again. I'm wanting to find that harmony in myself. I'm wanting to share it, broadcast it, radiate it, realize it, see it in my environment. So all of this poured into um, the impetus for writing my book. And, uh, and yeah, it's a parallel track with, uh, with political activism. Yes, yes. Uh, a theme that comes back uh, in your book, that returns often in your book, is for me this this matter of intimacy with nature, which uh, you began to cultivate early with your grandmother. <laughs> so, if you would speak, in and if you want to read a poem at any time, you're absolutely welcome. But I would say, if as a poet and as a, as a narrator, if you could put together the two concepts of intimacy and poignancy in terms of your relationship with the earth. Ooh, that touches my heart. Mm, good. I think that a lot of us, in addition to feeling a, a deep love of the earth and that motivating us to act... I'm thinking that a lot of us also experience some grief, sorrow, fear about what's happening with the earth. So there's right there, there's the intimacy and the poignancy. Mm-hmm. And we find these things, I certainly can speak for myself, I find these things living very close to each other in my heart. And um, that grief and fear can paralyze us or it can catalyze us. But when I keep it close to the love in my heart, it tends to have a more catalyzing effect. Mm-hmm. And um, I can I can say that much. As far as sharing a little bit more about intimacy with the earth, I've been thinking about an experience I had with my wife when we were on our honeymoon in Greece. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a very mysterious experience of intimacy with the earth. It's a brief piece from the book. Would it be okay if I read it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think experiences like this really tug at our sleeves. I've never understood this one to this day. Greece. Leslie and I rent a car, and this is 1975, and drive from Athens to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. We stop in a remote, mountainous region above the ancient site of the city of Sparta. There's a bright, full sweep of stars. We get out of the car to rest and relieve ourselves. The entire Earth is vibrating at a low but quite audible frequency. 
There are no visible towers or power stations, no human habitations, no artificial lights, no other traffic on the highway. The hum deepens. The earth itself seems super sentient. The vibration comes up through the soles of our feet and legs direct from the soil, which feels to us as if suffused with a dense magnetic energy. It's like we've stepped into another dimension, a more highly resonant realm. Now the energy continues to lift and the bass buzz becomes more audible. As this happens, our own bodies take on a more charged bioelectronic quality. Silence deepens in our minds like a reservoir fills with water after heavy rain. We stay until it feels like it's time to go, then drive away into the night, our bodies full of sparkling dark darkness, like the star fields floating overhead. So that's just a, a little touchstone. I could share others. And so could the listeners uh, of a moment of profound intimacy with the earth, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, that can happen in a place we've never been before like that, although it tends to happen more for me in places that I've been a lot, like in my garden or walking in a nearby cemetery where I enjoy connecting with nature or in the woods. And I guess the one thing I'd like to add to this is yes. that as I'm speaking and you all out there are listening, I hope that experiences I share might jog your memories to remember times, not necessarily times that are uh, non-ordinary or extraordinary, but just times of affection for and connection with the earth and maybe other, other, other events that have happened that have deepened your own confidence in the ways in which we're all one and we really can make a difference um, in our connection with the environment. Well, uh, here it is exactly. In reading your book, I have been able to remember instances, uh, synchronicities, moments. So it's really activated memories in me and and above all, made these, these memories important. And so I want to go to this place of um, non-ordinary states. Are they not non-ordinary simply because we don't give them, we don't highlight them? <laughs> I think so. In fact, I, I had a little problem with my own limited choices for words and ended up writing towards the, uh, towards the end of the, the little overview that I did as a kind of introduction and an orientation for the reader briefly. Extrasensory, parapsychological, paranormal, <laughs> supernatural, non-ordinary. Look at those prefixes. Yeah. They each imply a spirit-matter split, a dualism that permeates some Eastern and most Western cultural and religious worldviews. Hopefully, someday this split will be culturally revisioned. Hopefully today, folks. And the meaning of these words revised so that we can accept all our experiences, sensory, psychological, psychical, and spiritual, as normal, natural, ordinary aspects of our lives. Is that is that kind of the the, the neighborhood you're in there, what you're thinking yourself, Joanna? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, um, also what I'm thinking is we need... Um, 
to highlight different parts of our story. And I feel that that's what you have done with your book. You've pointed the way to highlighting different aspects of our experience. So if you would like to speak about telling the story in a different way, because I really believe that's what we need. Our story, our story as humans, as animals, as connected to the earth. Would you speak about that? trying to find a connecting point. Well, how you came to choose to tell your story in the way that you do. The way that happened was that I was invited to give a talk, um, uh, a sermon, a couple summers ago at the local Unitarian Universalist Church. And I ended up giving a sermon called Sacred Exchanges with Nature. And I did speak of our intimacy with nature. I offered some scientific evidence uh, supportive of the notion that we can nurture the natural world through meditation, prayer, and blessing, and all kinds of joyful, creative uh, expressions. And uh, and then, I, uh, just a little bit shyly, I decided to offer some personal anecdotes. Um, and these were distinctly kind of flamboyant non-ordinary occurrences that happened in nature that seemed to be, you know, just a point to to a very, very close, intimate, reflexive relationship that we have with nature. And the reason I was a bit shy in particular um, was that oftentimes uh, Unitarians are a bit more cognitively oriented, perhaps a bit more skeptical in some congregations at least about things mystical or parapsychological. But it, these little tales were rather well received and it got me wondering how many other things um, can I remember from my life where they weren't just purely subjective experiences but like these two stories that I've just mentioned um, other people witnessed what were what was happening and there was some sort of external phenomenon that that confirmed that something real was happening because those would be particularly uh, faith producing and interesting to people and uh, as I sat down and started journaling those things for days and days, I came up with about 80 or 85 different incidences where it hadn't just been me, but say me and a friend um, in the woods witnessing um, witnessing lights floating by together, spirit lights, something that the Native Americans would have readily recognized as relating to spirits, um, or other events where things had happened that that weren't just uh, that weren't just happening in my in my own personal field of experience alone. Well, uh, uh, something that has interested me a lot about you is that you seem to, in your life, have brought yourself to a place of convergence uh, spiritually, putting together uh, the Native American uh, experience the Vedanta experience, the um, Scottish... Yes. So I'd love it if you could talk about this place of convergence that you found in yourself. Well, it's, it's interesting that you should ask. Um, I think that might have been one of the one of the sole tasks of my writing this book, because I recognize that that convergence of that, those things which have been most precious to me, in the teachings of Van Horn, of 
Mahayana Buddhism, um, of, of other, those, those have been two of the predominant uh, threads in my spiritual life. That, and on, uh, in, in writing about those things, I probably helped to, to bring those things both into clearer perspective individually and sort of to see how they braided together more, maybe express that a little bit more. But more, um, more present and at hand, actually in my hand, on to, in order to set up for this interview, Joanna, on one side of me, uh, I have a, a heart-shaped stone that I found on a beach in Scotland, which has always had a lot of power for me. And on the other side are two perfect hearts that I found. One is a stone that I found um, on the curb right in front of David Spangler's house. Mm-hmm. And he kind of represents, or in some ways is, a, is an important uh, lineage bearer of the Findhorn and Western esoteric tradition. Mm-hmm. And then there's another stone that's a perfect heart that I found at His Holiness the Karmapas uh, seat in the United States, Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, which is in Woodstock, New York, mm-hmm. when Leslie and I went to see uh, the young Karmapo when he first came to the United States a few years ago. And all of these hearts together, uh, I guess that's, I, I didn't think about it, but I guess they're a kind of a, a tangible way in which I can array that that sense of convergence around me and, and feel the blessing of it as I This is beautiful, beautiful. And all of the, I hadn't thought about it, but all these things are just gifts from the earth. Exactly. So I, I'm inspired at this moment to ask you if you could read a poem that expresses for you the meeting of your heart with the, with the many hearts of the earth. Perfect. The one from Scott. Um, Mull, it's one of the 144, roughly, Hebridean islands off the west coast of Scotland. And it's really steeped in deep peace. And when I was on Mull, it was just a, it was a place where I opened up pretty much permanently uh, to nuances of color and light. I was there as a young guy, about 21, and it really changed me. The Isle of Mull, this is called. Mm-hmm. Cloud and light clubs break over granite mull. The plover lays her polished eggs in an open keep of sand and bone. Waves roam down the earth's slow curve. High tours of lark song spur the wind. The silence of the world mends here. And I guess while we're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while we're in the British Isles, yes, <laughs> I might share another one that uh, was kind of, kind of more diaphanous and subtle um, piece. Um, in in la- in the last year or so, I've been having experiences that uh, I guess would be as impressive uh, a sense of connection with other beings as I've ever experienced um, experiences with what the Celtic peoples in um, Ireland and Scotland call the she, mm. or the, the 
Mm-hmm. Not the not the, the 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 gossamer tiny fairies that are conceptualized often as flower fairies, but something uh, very radiant and very parallel to our own uh, evolution in some way. And this was an early sense of that um, coming really more through the environment than through the the clearer contacts that I've had in the last year or so. This one is called The Old Ones. Mm-hmm. A talkative fire. Lamb and bird sounds blur on the wind. High shale cliffs front the valley's east slope. Breeze rushes over poplar there. Raven lofts over hallucinated walls of stacked fieldstone. Two roads wind away west toward old blunt peaks. Now, we're taken in. Peripheral, nearly parallel us. Light, fey eyes open into our moment. Old ones view us. Our circles grow near. They send a night moth. They summon and glass. And now I think it's time to come back to the United States. And, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Share one. Um, that uh, it was a, it's part of a, a, a longer piece I wrote in the book about my first experiences of out-of-the-body travel. And certainly it's possible to encounter nature very, very, in a very deep communion during times of, um, expanded awareness, out-of-the-body travel. It, my experiences have often not been on um, so much on astral mm-hmm. subtle planes as projections out into nature. And I tried to write about, a, a kind of create a composite or a collage of those experiences from my mid-teen years on. Uh, and that this is what this is what came, came out. Yeah. So now we're in Kansas. Okay. But uh, apparently I covered quite a bit of ground. This is called First Ways of Flight. I found awakened way to fly my slightest dream across the prairie, wireless, tree to tree. At times, barbed wire and taut black talk lines sliced my flight. Mm. They stung and nettled my dream body, just as they overhung and netted this country. Encroaching suburbs sometimes held me from full span. Clench fists of smoke from factories. Dense inner, inner cities pulled on me. Yet I was willingly drawn down to certain altars, shrines, archways, parks, side roads, homes, and human gatherings where primal silence reasserts itself. Then I could begin to glide once more on amber waves of light east-west above the land. My being sought sanctuary in mountains and rivers at estuaries of spirit. I rested in slow-breathing meadows far from men. Night after night, these dream, dreams moved me in vision flight beyond a life I had thought mine on through the gray where worlds meet 
into a country where all colors are sacred and alive. Mm. I hope these uh, these poems fit the bill for what you were wanting me to come up with here for you. Oh yeah, they are, I get a little carried away and they are, forget what you asked. <laughs> they're they're high up on the marquee, absolutely. I wanted to ask you if you could describe what kind of life uh, have you created for yourself so you can access these rivers of inspiration as a poet and well, a songwriter. It's unfortunate um, to be with a partner who's a... She, Leslie and I have been together since 1973, and uh, we're happy... Um, living here in Fayetteville with three other little mammals, uh, two cats and a dog, and we're both um, clinical social workers, and we've been able to, over the years, to get to a point where we can be in, both of us in part-time private practice. So, you know, lucky, lucky folks. And uh, as a result, although I've always written, no matter how busy, it sure is wonderful to have extra time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, another aspect to my life is that most, uh, most every day of the week I take a walk. And I hope you folks that live in cities um, consider this, if you're not already getting to know the different areas where you can walk in your city, it's a wonderful thing to find, oh, you know, anywhere from parks to to tuck away little places that have been forgotten where you can walk. And my walks have been very important to me over the years. They're, they're very informal kinds of meditations where I do what old, old Walt Whitman said, I loaf and invite my soul. And uh, during those walks, a lot, of, a lot of good words come to me from time, time to time in the midst of the silence. Uh, Wordsworth and many other poets have written while walking, lines come rather easily in, in movement to some people. And so that's been, that's been a part of the, the way in which my day-to-day life has, has served the creative process that I hope will be manifest in the book. It's my intuition that um, I would like to jump to your work as a uh, anti-nuclear activist and what you've written about radiation protection. Sure. Well, I never really thought that what we did was the last word, and I always thought it was a, you know, a nice compilation, uh, and always hoped that it would result in even better compilations. Uh, but years ago, I was uh, living on a piece of land with with Leslie near some friends um, in Arkansas and um, I was given some peyote and uh, at the towards the end of the the blessed day that I spent mm-hmm. I found myself standing in a white light and um, there were beings of light around me and very respectfully they conveyed to me you can work on a book on uh, natural substances that help protect the body from radiation. You could do that. Mm-hmm. No, um, you know, no violation of my free will. Very respectful. This is something that you can do. And a, a 
and he uh, told me that he was working on a pamphlet on that very topic. And so Stephen Schechter, who now lives in California, and I and some other people took about seven or eight years to research and write a book um, called Counteracting Radiation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it involves various ways that the body could be protected from different kinds of um, ionizing radiation through substances that chelate or that uh, the word might be supersaturate, for example, um, if we get enough healthy iodine from seaweed, um, there'd be less uptake of iodine-131 by the thyroid. Other different indications of substances that are accessible to people that have some radioprotective value. And, uh, and we put out the book, and it's, it's in its third printing. Okay, and this can be found through the Lorian website? No, it's not Lorian. Okay. Um, I think it's Vitality, Inc., But I think the best thing, if people are interested, they could just they could just Google counteracting radiation. Okay. And while we're talking, I'm I'm just gonna look up and be. I'll see if I can find the whole title because it's been so long since I wrote the book. I think it's counteracting radiation with foods, herbs, and supplements. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was, I, I, I used to joke with people and say, you know, I, I don't know if I'll be taking peyote again unless I, I'm ready for another assignment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that I had to do it. A couple years ago, another assignment came to me, um, and I was, it, it came on the natch. I wasn't, uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't working with one of the healing plants. Yeah. But one evening, I got a kind of download. I just want to mention this briefly, Joanna. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I got the sense that um, I really would like to do something to decompartmentalize um, science, uh, particularly um, climate science, and different approaches that scientists are trying to come up with to um, mitigate climate change, to diminish the effects of climate change, Mm -hmm. and the use of uh, focused, really expert intuition. And I created the PSI PSI hyphen SCI project, mm-hmm. and I've written about this some in the book because some really wonderful synchronicities have come about, and it's been very interesting. Um, the first intuitive I worked with, um, with a scientist who I'm going to be anonymous. I'm not going to say this person's name because I want to protect um, a lot of scientists who are well established. They really need to be careful with their reputations. Um, okay. Their academic colleagues don't always understand uh, forays into the intuitive. Uh, but I did meet a really uh, prominent climate scientist who's very open. And he and I have worked uh, extensively with the great uh, U.S. government, or used to be U.S. government remote viewer, Joseph McMoneagle, mm-hmm. and tackled a number of questions about the approaches that he's working with. And uh, even today, I got a, I got an email from Joseph where he was looking at some different questions that we had sent him about sunspot activity over the next uh, 11 years or so and how that might affect the climate. And uh, so I've launched into this area, too, as a result of an intuitive kind of a prod. And uh, I'm very excited about this area, and I wanted your listeners to know about this, too. Um, 
think it's so important, and I know that I'm one of very many people who are working to kind of um, break down the barriers between the use of intuition and scientific research mm-hmm. of different kinds. Mm-hmm. It's happening all over the place. I read um, Elizabeth Mayer's book, Extraordinary Knowing, um, about the inexplicable powers of the human mind and was so interested in that as part of the inspiration for this, I'm sure. One of the stories um, in my book is about a guy who she um, actually cites right at the beginning of her book as the person who uh, did something so outrageously intuitive that uh, she just couldn't believe that that she became interested in this whole topic. And uh, his name was uh, Harold McCoy. And Harold was a healer and a dowser who lived here in Fayetteville and had some experiences with him. But not to get too far afield here, um, I wanted your your listeners to know about Extraordinary Knowing, if they have any interest in the history of parapsychology over the last 150 years and some of the highlights. It really is extraordinary um, what already is being done with uh, bringing parapsychology into areas of research and much more, I think, needs to be done because we really need to draw on every damn one of our resources as human beings in order to deal with this current climate predicament that we, uh, that we have created. I tried to use the opposite of this expression, so I said, I'm living to share something with you. Please. While you were describing the fact that you got this download about, uh, and this very respectful download about um, uh, ways in which... Uh, we can uh, protect ourselves from radiation. I uh, was wrinkling my nose, and Hosewis was looking at me like, uh, "What's going on?" And I began to to smell bake baking bread. It was extraordinary, you know, that inc- exquisite smell of fresh bread being baked in the oven. And nobody here is baking any bread. Wow. And and it went away when you when you finished uh, talking about radiation protection. And so I want to address your intuition directly, like that. Tell me what comes up for you about that. Wow. Huh. Well, certainly it sounds fragrant. It sounds lovely. So it sounds like it's in a you know it, it's in a good feeling mode. Um, it sounds like something's being prepared. Uh, I don't know. It's almost like I'm applying some of the things that I've done with dream interpretation. You know, um, do you have any sense of your of your own about it? What's up with uh, with that? Wonderful yeah, yeah. Olfactory kind of a experience. Uh, olfactory hallucination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was amazing because it was so real and so delicious. And um, well, the way I could interpret it is that here we're talking about radiation, probably the most, um, the most, well, one of the most threatening things that is happening, um, destructive things that is happening, and uh, what is being offered 
is the most basic sense of 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 fulfillment and nourishment that can be. So I don't know. Anyway, it was. I don't either, but it made sense what you just said. That something nurturing is being intended or offered, or maybe you're getting some kind of an impression from it that that is an is altogether wholesome and uh, kind of antithetical to the the toxicity and the uh, the awfulness of of, of of ionizing radiation. So, I want to ask you a question, which is, so you, you speak about. And David Spangler speaks a lot about these uh, other dimensional beings yes. uh, downloading information and uh, coming, to, in a sense, to our help. And then there is this uh, sense that one gets from your book that you are uh, exquisitely rooted in the earth. And so imagine telling us how these two things come together for you. And I'm still sorting all that out myself. Um, when I met Dorothy McLean at the Findhorn community, she was so exquisitely rooted in the earth. She still is. She's in her early 90s now, and she's living at Findhorn now. And I think that um, she and my dear friend, uh, Robert Sudlow, who died... Um, two marches ago at age 90, we're both, and, and I've uh, dedicated the book to these two beautiful souls, they were both models for me of people who were both very subtle and very aware of subtle energies and also deeply rooted in the earth. And I remember in reading some of Dorothy's early writings how she, uh, she wanted to deconstruct that that split again between spirit and matter by saying, don't just think that attunement to nature means that you're going to be getting subtle impressions with your eyes closed. Open your eyes, look at that tree, mm -hmm. see the radiance there, and allow yourself to touch it and, yeah, smell it and, and, uh, and feel in every way. And so there were no, uh, there were no splits or, or divisions being made uh, in that message. And when I was with Sudlow, when he was, he was a landscape painter. And I don't know if I've ever known anybody um, whose transmission of communion with nature I could feel as, as tangibly as, as Bob. And when I was with him, I also had this sense of an unbroken continuum, um, a field of awareness uh, that, he, uh, that he just radiated. There was a, you know, it was a complete um, sweep between that which is very subtle and vibratory and unseen and that which is absolutely down to earth. Down and oh, I had a wonderful experience with um, with Sudlow at one point, which I might like to share with you if you're if you're willing, that really illustrates how down to earth. Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. Thanks. Yeah, um, I wrote this in the book and kind of interesting. The way Bob lived and worked inspired me to offer adoration and praise back to nature. For him, painting was a sacramental act, partaking of a very similar spirit to be found in Jesuit priests and paleontologists. 
Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's great text, The Mass on the World, mm -hmm. in which, while traveling in the steppes of Asia without communion wine or wafers, de Chardin makes the whole earth his altar and offers it up for divination, in Greek, theosis, blessing the entire planet. And when I was with Bob, as he painted outdoors, I could feel the way his loving attention saturated the landscape. He was so intimate with the inscape of eastern Kansas that being in the field with him facilitated some remarkable confirmatory experiences and communions of my own. So we'll slide back a few years in time now. Yeah. Bob takes me to a hillside farm where he's done a lot of outdoor painting in all kinds of weather. We're walking through the center of the field, which he says has recently been further cleared and expanded by bulldozing. I vaguely sense a disturbance here and ask Bob, do you think that the nature spirits get upset by things like this clearing that's just been done? Bob's walking about eight feet in front of me. There are no trees, nothing above us or anywhere near us. Immediately after I ask him that question, a solid dirt clod falls out of thin air from directly above me and hits me smack on the chest right over my heart. I check with Bob that he hasn't mischievously tossed it back over his shoulder, but no, he hasn't. I'm inclined to take this as a direct answer from nature and feel it couldn't have happened without Bob's potentiating connection with the living energies of this cherished place where he's painted so often. So he's built up a relationship with presences there. And in, in thinking about our talk together today, I wanted to really emphasize that notion of the possibility of building up collaborative relationships with the sentient energies of nature, yes. with, with nature spirits. These sacred relationships may contribute to environmental harmony and the, they may even help to downscale our climatic predicament in days to come. Mm -hmm. And unlike David Spangler, I'm not super aware of, um, of the inner planes or subtle things. They, I get ambushed from time to time by, um, by different subtle awarenesses or mm -hmm. connections with, uh, with beings. Um, but it seems to me like those things are, are, are less frequent for me. Um, they're not as clear for me. Now, on the plus side, when they happen, they really, really make an impression, and I really remember them because they are sort of rare for me. Mm -hmm. um, however, you're right. I do have a, a nice connection with the earth itself, and uh, through that, I think I, I sense and uh, kind of empath my way along to feeling some of that, some more of that, the subtle elements of the continuum. Very, very, very nice. So um, we're coming towards the end of uh, this time of our connection, and uh, I would like to ask you, what would you like to say in closing to the people who are kindly listening to us? I think it's awfully helpful to, to know that being as we are all one, or even if we don't know it, to just kind of hold this as a hypothesis and give it a try, that we can really attune to anything in the universe. And if we just get relatively quiet, not perfectly quiet, and uh, 
put out a, a clear uh, wish to be attuned to a tree or to the deva, the overlighting kind of um, essence or template holder of a particular species of animal or plant, like you can find in the Findhorn Garden book, like Dorothy McLean did, um, like many people have done shamanically and all, all down the ages. Um, I want us to feel like it's possible for us to do that. And then just to open up and see what comes. And to know that the love that we feel, the connection that we feel, even if we don't feel something, through those kinds of exercises, through using those psychic spiritual muscles, we can strengthen them and we can strengthen our connection with nature and we can give something back uh, to contribute to environmental harmony. And um, yeah, that's what I'd like folks to, to remember and have fun with. Um, and so if you have a place of connection, a particular tree or a you know, a, a garden or a, uh, those bird feeders out back. Um, wherever you do connect with nature, a lot of us do it through our pets. Um, that might be your doorway into a deeper relationship with nature and with yourself um, and the practice of some kind of attunement um, can be a really helpful way to nurture this um, this sense of collaboration that I hope my book will help to I'll be one more thing to kind of help advance this. Um, and may you all generate others. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, this conversation is delicious, like fresh baked ah. bread. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'm getting hungry. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for the connection. You are welcome. And Black Oak stood on Harney Peak. He spanned the four directions. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org